0: Hey, welcome to this episode of the African PreSeed podcast. In this episode, we take you to Cape Town, South Africa, where the African PreSeed podcast was live on the ground at the Africa Early Stage Investor Summit, better known as ASIS, held between November 30 and December 2nd, 2, 2023. During the conference, we spoke to five conference participants representing stakeholders in the African innovation economy, ranging from primarily investors, it is an investment conference after all, to founders. Those people are. Eleni Ghebrey-Martin, Chief Innovation Officer, United Nations Development Programme Africa, Ali Al-Shakhani, Managing Partner, Acacia Ventures, Tracy Kimathi, Founder, Baridi, Maxime Bayen, Operating Partner, Catalyst Fund, and Co-Founder, Africa The Big Deal, and Ben White, Founder and Director, VC4A, and Co-Founder Independent Executive Committee Board Member, Africa Business Angels Network, also known as ABAN. Let's begin. First up, we have Eleni Gebrematin, who prior to joining the UNDP in 2021 was and still is the chairperson of Blue Space, Ethiopia's premier co working space company.
1: Hi, my name is Eleni Gebrematin. I'm the Chief Innovation Officer at UNDP, UN, United Nations Development Programme, Regional Bureau for Africa in New York. So I am here at ACES. This is actually my first time. It's pretty exciting.
2: Excellent.
1: I'm here because at UNDP, we are launching what we are positioning to be the world's largest initiative to support the African innovation ecosystem. Mm -hmm. It's a project or let's call it an initiative called Timbuktu. And so the ambition of Timbuktu is to establish a catalytic plus commercial blended financing facility, working with all players in the ecosystem. Mm. And so I really came to ACES because I wanted to connect mm. to the early stage. It's a, It's an early stage investment play yes. that we're doing. So it was really important to meet the community of early stage investing firms, VC. So it's been a really amazing experience actually.
0: Fantastic. Well, I was going to ask Timbuktu, what's your thesis about why innovation could make that difference from from the UNDP perspective? Why are you even going in this route? Because it's a major commitment. I'm sure it's something that's exciting in the ecosystem. You must think it could work to to state the obvious. So what's your thesis supporting your initiative?
1: Excellent question. Excellent question. So first of all, the ambition is to mobilize and invest a billion dollars over the next 10 years. And the idea is to basically achieve a funnel of 10,000 startups that go through eight hubs that we're going to establish, nodes, hubs, whatever we're trying to come up with the right term for those eight Pan-African hubs that we're going to establish on the continent with the idea that 10,000 startups over 10 years will go through them, Mm. of which we're sort of positioning that 1,000 will scale up and have impact on 100 million livelihoods and achieve a 10x or tenfold value creation of $10 billion for the continent. So that's our big picture. The why or the thesis behind that is really to solve three problems. The first is that we feel that early stage risk capital in some ways, needs to be fixed in Africa. Yes, we've seen a big inflow of venture capital yes. growth over the last, you know, three, four years. Obviously with the slowdown mm-hmm. last mm-hmm. year, but still pretty spectacular growth, you know, since 2020. But. 89% of it is concentrated in four countries. 83% of it is foreign capital. Yes. There's no region in the world that has had this much dependence on foreign investment for its knowledge economy. So that's something we, we want to see how we can crowd in more domestic risk capital, mm. also diffuse it beyond the big four. So how do because we know talent is everywhere, yes. but opportunity is not. So how do we take capital and make it easier to invest outside of the big four? And then the the other issue that we see with early stage risk capital is that it's highly concentrated in one sector, primarily fintech. So sixty odd percent. Mm. So how do we you know also encourage and catalyze capital to go to the real economy agri tech health tech you know smart cities etc education tech and so on so that's one basket of why the second is that we see a very fragmented ecosystem in other words there are lots of people with funds that don't have pipeline mm-hmm. there are lots and lots of incubators accelerators generally ecosystem support organizations that work with startups, but then can't get them to the funding. So there's this big disconnect between the two, but also a disconnect in terms of missing actors in the ecosystem. We don't see enough corporate engagement Mm -hmm. and that's a really big, you know, gap compared to again, other regions where we see so much more activity with, with corporate engagement and then also universities where knowledge resides, where knowledge is generated, where there's so much, you know, innovation thinking, and yet it's completely, you know, segmented in Africa from the innovation or startup ecosystem. And part of that is because there hasn't been enough policy thinking or, you know, support for tech transfer programs, you know, IP regimes, royalties, et cetera, all of those things that make the universities for example, the great universities in in Silicon Valley, Stanford, or, you know, in Israel or Singapore, you have the role of universities mm-hmm. as almost central to the way the startup ecosystem unfolds. And that's something that we're not seeing. And and yet we have this enormous pool of young people and yes. talent on this continent, the greatest in the world right now. I mean, half of the world's population will, half of the world's labor force will be African in 2050, mm-hmm. just, you know, 25 years from now. So how do we, and, and a lot of are passing through universities so if you're not working on innovation and downstream commercialization of innovation on campuses then you're kind of missing the boat and then you still complain about pipelines so how do we bridge that so that's the second part and then the third is In 2021, as you probably know, a large number of countries, I think now we're at about 44, ratified the Africa Continental Free Trade Area, if I could ever pronounce AFCFTA. And so what does that mean for for startups? How are we going to build pan-African, we call them one Africa market plus startups? So how do we think global? How do we go beyond borders? And a lot of times, and I ran an incubator in Ethiopia, and I would have all, you know, our startups all want to go across Africa, but they always say, well, you know, we're going to do Ethiopia first. And then if I'm doing well, I'll go across to Kenya and East Africa and et cetera, et cetera. But that's not really the way you build great global startups. You have to think global from the beginning. You have to think Pan-African from the beginning. And it's really hard to, with the morass of bureaucracy and red tape and, you know, all the, all the barriers that there are. So how do we break that down? And so an organization like UNDP can actually have, you know, an impact in that yes. area. And can bring some value uh, to that conversation of how to work with the AFCFTA Secretariat, how to provide, you know, trade. We're calling it Trade Africa Advisory. So that's something we're building into this Timbuktu initiative.
0: Governments tend to move slowly, yes. Corporates can move slowly, but maybe a little faster. And a lot of the institutional capital on the continent lies in corporates. South Africa is a very good example of we have incredibly large corporates that operate with billion dollar plus cap tables and sheets. How do you go convincing them to provide their local capitals? Is it a shift in mindset that they don't know about, or is it just a avoidance of risk? What sort of conversations are you having? Because that's where a lot of the capital sits. So yes. I'd love to know, what are you telling them and what's their perspective of perhaps why they haven't gotten their feet involved before?
1: Well, part of it is education, public mm. education, and the other is the maturing of the ecosystem itself. So when the unicorns, the eight that we now have on mm. the continent started to emerge, about three years ago, or a little bit longer, in the case of Jumia, people start to pay attention and say, wait a minute, this is something now, finally, we get why startups are important. Because before that, it was just all oh, young people sitting in internet cafes, you know, developing apps, and we're not really sure where that's all going to go. Well, all of a sudden, when, you know, ChipperCash has 4 million users on their platform in three years, which is more than the combined total of all the financial inclusion NGOs and projects and donor funded programs, if you added all that up, it wouldn't achieve what this one company has achieved in three years. So it's not even just the fact that it's valued at several billion dollars. It's the fact that it's having impact on SMEs, you know, millions of users. Same thing with Flutterwave and, you know, all the other ones. And so all of a sudden, I think governments as well as investors, as well as African financial institutions are saying, we got to get in on this. This is important. So now you have startup acts that start to pop up. I mean, it's not like the community, the ecosystem has not been asking for startup acts or startup friendly legislation, but now it's now people understand better why it matters. So I think early success is you know a really mm. important driver of, of change in mindset, but also just exposure. I, I think, I don't have the statistics, but I have a feeling that the number of country delegations, and I know Ethiopia has sent a, a vice president level or let's say deputy prime minister level delegation to Silicon Valley. I know other countries, I, I heard recently President Ruto went to Silicon yes. Valley. I know President Kagame has been Silicon Valley. So all of a sudden and you have leaders, African leaders saying, we need to understand how this whole thing works. We're gonna go, you know, experience it ourselves, and then we're gonna come back and put in place the right policies to incentivize domestic capital. So right now, Rwanda has set up the Rwanda Innovation Mm. Fund. I think it's about a hundred million dollar fund. Nigeria followed suit, seeing what Rwanda had done and has now a six hundred million government backed Nigerian Innovation Fund. So this thing is going to, you know, keep going. And so I think that that's one part of it. And then the other really is also the, the ecosystem itself kind of also maturing. Because I think in some sense, when all this started, you know, let's say five, six years Mm. ago, I mean maybe a little bit longer when VCs were coming into Africa they weren't at the table they weren't I mean they were because venture capital itself I think, has been maturing over the last decade, and particularly here in Africa, because I think entering into the policy conversation was something that, you know, VC didn't really see itself doing or having to do. I was at a conference recently in Washington put up by 500 Global, and uh, the, the title of the conference was Venture Capital is Due for a Reset. And they actually had U.S. government officials at this conference. And they were saying, this is the first time we've ever done this because venture capital is a little bit the Wild West. And so I think now V.C. is sort of saying we need to talk to government and we, we need to sit at the table and figure out how this is all going to get done together. So I think, you know, so, so it's an interesting time. You know, the idea that V.C. being due for a reset is in what sense? Being more inclusive? Being more patient, being more sort of impact minded, all of these things are, I think the maturing of, of VC itself. So So this is sort of the confluence that we're at the push from the demographics on the one hand here in Africa, you know, the, the realization of these successes and how to get more of them on the part of governments. And then VC itself sort of saying, we need to do this in a, in a, in a different way. It's not just a, sort of, you know, a cowboy mentality, if you will.
0: <laughs> it does have the reputation. I mean, I've heard it actually mentioned at this conference, Silicon so Valley is all well, they do provide a fantastic test case, but naturally it's not a, good good suit for africa at all just because of africa's unique environment and the 54 markets that make it up so what lessons should the ecosystem broadly speak and maybe try to put myself in the shoes of a founder should they take from Silicon valley
1: you know i can't speak to the whole you know vc industry to answer that question mm. because you know I'm, I'm also coming into it uh, in this way in a, sort of in a new way yeah. but i would like to say that you know when we were sort of thinking about the best model for Timbuktu. Mm. We looked at Silicon Valley, but we also looked eastward. And so I think Israel provides a really amazing uh, example of how an ecosystem kind of came together with a lot of intentionality mm. on the part of government. are
0: the key words um, for intentionality. Intentionality. Uh, yeah. And then
1: Singapore is the other example. And, and I would say also India, which are really all sort of looked at both Silicon Valley and Israel as inspiration. And, and I think that's very much in our DNA as well. So if you will, I think what really I, I have taken mm. from the Silicon Valley model is this idea of sidecar structures, accelerators working with VC or being, you know, VC working hand in hand with accelerator programs. And this is something we didn't have in Africa a lot and sort of now starting to, to gain you know, some currency. So this is one of the central elements of, of the Timbuktu model. But then I think on the other side, what you get and what we've taken from Timbuktu is this idea of catalytic capital that works with commercial capital and how the two can interplay. And I think that, you know, Singapore has, has been doing this, India has been doing this. And of course, I, I would say the originator of this model is a program in the 90s in, in Israel called Yozma that really kind of showed how government funds can be used used with private commercial capital, you know, fund managers and how to deploy that in, in a way that actually ends up leveraging, you know, multiple fold what the government's initial investment was. And so that's kind of the model that's driving Timbuktu as well. So I would say that Silicon Valley is also in in some sense now looking south mm-hmm. and west uh, or sorry, east yes. in the sense that, you know, you've got now tech stars very active in Africa. You've got 500 very active in Africa, you've got Y Combinator that's increasingly starting to get out of its Silicon Valley sort of nexus, and coming, you know, also to Africa. So I think that their models are going to be completely different, or in some sense, you know, adapted to where Africa is today, an idea of working much more closely with intentional governments, And I think that that interplay is what maybe will emerge as the new model.
0: If it weren't hard, everyone would do it. Yes, exactly. Two more questions, just the conversations you've had with the, I was going to say peers, but you're coming in from quite a unique angle, but you're looking to collaborate. Yes. Um, what, what insights have you found so most interesting speaking to the investors and even the startups attending this conference that you did not know before or you think you were really, really important?
1: I think for me, what was a bit surprising is the amount of pain points that VC has gone through over the last year. Mm. I mean I knew that things had slowed down. But I think I was, you know, busy building a model that I was really excited about or that we we're really excited about. And, and so this bullish about Africa mindset that I came with was tempered a little bit, I have to say, by just kind of hearing how, you know, the slump in BC has really also now come to Africa. Cause I think initially it hadn't. And so 2022 was sort of a year where we sort of saw everybody else, you know, declining and then Africa's kind of still holding its numbers. But I think 2023 has been in a hard year, because. and I hadn't realized how hard uh, it was until I started hearing, you know, people's comments mm, and perspectives, mm. and so I think that was a, a bit of a tempering moment for me, and that was useful to hear. And then I think the you know other exciting thing, and here I'm going to be optimistic again, yes. is how excited everybody is about Timbuktu, which leads me to think that there is a gap, mm. and that this kind of an intentional, inclusive, bold massive ambition is overdue and so i feel you know that there's going to be a lot of a lot of exciting sort of outcomes in the coming years
0: my final question i mean the theme of this conference at asus was 10 years in mm-hmm. the ecosystem and i'm going to actually also try and end on a positive note yes. what excites you for the next 10 years
1: well i think what's exciting is to really see alignment i, I see more and more alignment around what's important Mm. and i think that you know it's just exciting to see how for example kenya a couple of weeks ago decided to you know abolish visas and sort of saying, this is what's going to change. And and I think these kind of things are just going to continue. You know, I'm not really into so much the big declarations and the African Union, you know, ministerial declarations and summits. I, I think that might trickle down to things. But I think what's more exciting is just what I sense to be a groundswell of momentum that, you know, there are now countries like Rwanda that are really changing the game. I mean, what the Kigali International Financial Center has done in just three years is phenomenal. There's still a long way to go in terms of double tax treaties and all of that, but it's it's just showing the power of will mm-hmm. that when a country can align both its private sector and, 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 and the government and, and public actors, things can really change. And so I'm super excited.
0: Next, Ali al-Shakani, who has over a decade of ecosystem experience and calls Cairo home. Yeah, hi, I'm Alil Shrakhani. I'm the founder
3: and managing partner of Acacia Ventures. Acacia Ventures is an early stage venture capital firm. We invest in predominantly in Egypt and Nigeria, but we've also done investments in other parts of the continent, including uh, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, South Africa, and Senegal.
0: And what brings you to ASIS in Cape Town this year?
3: Well, it's the best party probably of the year (laughs) for early stage investors to meet and collaborate and uh, learn from each other. Mm. So I've actually been involved with Aces from the very start. Before founding Acacia Ventures, I was one of the co-founders of one of the first angel networks on the continent called the Cairo Angels. That was in 2011. So I got to meet a lot of the founders of uh, VC for Africa and Aces back when they started this. Over a decade ago. Mm. So uh, it's really amazing to be here to celebrate uh, the 10 year anniversary of this amazing summit.
0: I was just going to say it is the 10th anniversary. So you've been involved in the early stage investing. I recall you saying on the panel for approximately 12, 13 years. How far has the ecosystem progressed? Because the view can be quite short term. Naturally, what's the latest macro? What's the latest economic cycle? Have we made progress? I think it's important to to put that line in the sand of where we were in 2010 approximately versus now. What's changed from your perspective, especially as an early stage investor?
3: Yeah, I think we've come uh, leaps and bounds, honestly. So um, it's an interesting time to reflect because this year has been a challenging year. But if you look at 10 years ago, it was much, much more challenging. I think today, uh, Ben White and his keynote were saying that when he looked at the state of of investing in venture, when he started in 2013, there was maybe $12 million invested across the continent. And of course, you know, that's very humble beginning, let's say humble beginning. All right. And you know, today we're, Complaining, maybe you know, and feeling a bit hurt that there's been some retraction, and that you know we're talking about somewhere in the region of four billion dollars. Mm. So obviously, from twelve million to four billion is, God knows, I mean that's not ten x. That's yes. uh, that's something much larger. So um, you know, uh, maybe just to give a couple of nuanced or nuances when I started, mm. which was that culturally there were still difficult to get people to believe that entrepreneurship is a viable career option instead of you know, trying to be a lawyer or engineer or a doctor, that actually being an entrepreneur means that's, it doesn't mean that you didn't get into those schools. Yes. It actually is a very viable, exciting, and very impactful career option. And I think today, when you look at the larger markets, the more developed markets on the continent, that's definitely the case. And that's why one of the big positives is that, you know in, in my 12, 13 years of investing, mm-hmm. I have not seen a better level and quality of talent building things. And when I look at now some of the underserved markets that we're trying to support and invest in, they're also learning that, mm. and they're breaking through those barriers, kind of like cultural barriers about you know entrepreneurship is a great way to to solve big problems for the society. And I'm very excited what that means, uh, what that means for
0: the next ten years. You're talking about the challenges, but there's also a ton of talents coming through the pipeline. Given the current macro, I mean. The Fed sneezes, the world catches the cold goes, the old saying, which has really squeezed the liquidity. Also, currency issues, which in, I'm sure you're very familiar with in Egypt yeah. and Nigeria. Uh, what are the positives of this, though? One word that I've heard is said resilience, you might get better founders. Do you, do you believe in that? And are, are there other positives that we haven't thought about, given the retraction that's taking place from a fundraising perspective, I guess?
3: Definitely like the hard journeys create, you know, really strong uh, founders and people humans in general so you know we have uh, on the African continent not only had to deal with the VC winter Mm. globally but also a lot of the macroeconomic issues that you pointed you know FX issues and um, you know new governments new mandates lots of lots of change and challenges those have created opportunities but also I think the you know an even more resilient mindset so we love that we love backing really resilient founders that are in it for the long haul But I'd be lying to you if I said that also they need the the environment and ingredients to thrive. Mm. So they're making it work Mm. in in difficult circumstances. But I think that on coming out of this, they will be stronger for it. We will have much more sustainable businesses that are ready to be uh, globally competitive.
0: Which verticals are the most interesting to you? I mean, there's an argument, we've made that argument on this podcast that FinTech is a base vertical, just given because it bleeds into everything else. But where do you think the most exciting opportunities may, be, may lie forward in, from a vertical point of view?
3: Yeah, we've had to give this a lot of thought. You know, as somebody that started as an angel investor that was quite agnostic and then becoming a fund manager, you have to develop a thesis. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've kind of iterated that at Acacia Ventures. And today we invest in fintech, agtech, e-commerce and SaaS. So the first three, fintech, agtech and e-commerce, We really focus on mass market digital products that can solve real and essential problems at scale, right? So that's why we chose Egypt and Nigeria as our focus because together Egypt and Nigeria represent 23% of the population of Africa. The markets there are, you know, we have a young tech savvy population with a lot of problems where digital solutions can have a really big impact on solving those and they can reduce costs and, and create prosperity, right? So that kind of explains the FinTech, AgTech and e-commerce. You, you touched on FinTech. Mm. So I think FinTech is a journey when, if you look at maybe 10 years back, we had to build like the base infrastructure, yes. so payments and so on. Today, actually, what we're really excited about is maybe the layer on top of that, which, which people are building, right? So um, just to give you an example, mm. as a result of the hard work done by FinTech entrepreneurs over the last 10 years, Regulators have taken note of the, the impact that technology can have on the economy. They would have never imagined like uh, 10 years ago that we, you know, this would be a $5 billion uh, industry. And I'm convinced that this would be a $50 billion in the next few decades on the continent. So they've taken note of that and they've started to put in regulations and infrastructure to try to accelerate those. So just to give you an example, which I think is a positive one. In Egypt, they uh, looked at uh, India and, and Brazil. So, okay, how did these guys become really successful in fintech specifically? And they realized that both of them introduced digital infrastructure that was backed by the government. So, in the India, it's called UPI, and they uh, did a twinning project there. And they introduced the equivalent in Egypt called InstaPay, and it essentially, it's like a Venmo, but it's done by the Central Bank of Egypt, and it it provides a digital digital infrastructure that a lot of now fintechs are building on top of to create a lot of new products and services that have helped tens of thousands of people and reduce costs considerably. So we're very excited by that. Lastly, I touched on SaaS. Yes, And I think that when I started this journey, you know, today AI is very sexy and every so-called AI. That's correct. When I started, it was B2B enterprise SaaS. That was like the buzzword, but we were very far away from being able to produce, I think, competitive products back in 2011 when I started. So today, Actually, we think that this is the right time and there is enough talent and quality on the continent to produce globally competitive SaaS products. Mm. And we are backing some of those folks and we believe that they can create very meaningful and impactful and effective products, not only for the continent, but actually to export to other markets.
0: Which personality traits do you think are the most important? The founder should, some are born with it, some can hone it, but which do you think will hold the founder in good stead if they're trying to build a business? It's really hard, especially now, but when you're talking to a person, if you want to call it the EQ, which, which things are green flags in your mind? Do you think, okay, there's something to work with here from a, an emotional point of view?
3: So we've actually tried to look at this a lot and I'm quite intrigued by this kind of psychological profile of uh. the founder and uh, there is a really interesting study that's being undertaken now by INSEAD Business mm-hmm. School on this profiling of founders and so on. But it's not done yet, so uh, what <laughs> I'll tell you is that anecdotally yes. what we have come to is that actually the number one characteristic that's required is grit and mm-hmm. resilience because it is a very hard j- journey with lots of ups and downs, lots of emotional turbulence, so you really need to have that you know, uh, staying power mm. to make it through this. So uh, that's the number one thing. Apart from that, I think we're really big believers in diverse teams. So diverse backgrounds, professionally, personally, but also diversity in terms of like, you know, gender diversity and other types of, you know, racial diversity because these different perspectives make you stronger. Yes. Right? So we're really big believers on that and we, we kind of upscore diverse teams a lot more than sort of more monochrome uh, teams.
0: My final question is it's 10X, it's a the theme of ISS moving into 2024 what do you think the next 10 years held i know you think it's going to grow more but do you do you think the ecosystem is going to develop in uncharted ways or ways of matched growth that we've seen in other markets i've heard the ecosystem are compared to silicon valley in the 70s for example is that a fair comparison or is Africa obviously taking its own path? Which way do you think it's going to go?
3: So the first thing is, I don't think we should follow the Silicon Valley playbook, mm. and I think that is that is something that uh, was a realization in my own journey. Yes, because when I started, I was I was taught the Silicon Valley playbook. And I think that my realization is that actually that doesn't work in anywhere except for Silicon Valley. And as I've been exposed to other parts of the world and other people doing this around the world, I think that we will have our own journey, Mm. but we can learn from the path of other people, right? So India for us is a very big example of, I think, where Africa can go and uh, we're maybe five to 10 years kind of behind because they've really accelerated in the last two years. Mm -hmm. I think we've decelerated a little bit so that's why instead of five it's maybe ten but um, they have uh similar population size similar demographics uh, similar problems and similar solutions and um, i think that that is a very good example to look at and if you look at where they've gone in the last five years you know i think this year they're on target to close at 30 billion uh, dollars invested in the market in one of in the vc winter so you can imagine if they continued you know kind of in the exuberant times of yes. the last two years what that would look like so that is a benchmark that we should absolutely target mm. but we also need to be humble enough to learn how did they do that what were the things that we can learn that we need to adopt in our
0: own markets we now hear from tracy kamathi who co founded Buruti in january 2021 in nairobi and pitched at the summit
2: So my name is Tracy Kimathi. I'm the founder of Baridi, which is a solar powered cold room solution provider based in East Africa, and we essentially do pay-as-your-store models and direct-sale models. I've come to ISIS, you know, simply to be introduced to investors. We're kind of going into the space where we're dealing with foundations, national governments, mm. NGOs who want to buy direct-sale models within the coal space. They've seen that there's actual impact in coal chain technologies to avoiding food loss. And we're here to raise money, simply put, and mm. to raise commercial-based equity. And debt rounds so that we can essentially be able to get working capital to finance this high asset products and essentially give them out or direct sale them to foundations and ngos
0: how have you found the conference experience so far it's heard people mention it is orientated to investors it's in the title early early african early stage investor mm-hmm. summit it's not your typical founder gathering. There no, are founders here, but it's mostly investors. So, how has your experience been being in an environment where investors are in the majority? Usually, it's the other way around. Founders yeah. often in the, in the environment. Absolutely. So how do you find
2: it? Yeah, so it's, it's easier to talk to, to an investor in this space. Usually, when you go into the African Climate Summit or if you go to other places where investors are located, it's not very easy to approach them. Mm. They're sort of crowded here. You can almost see an investor pitching, it's kind of like a reverse pitch type of environment I got to hear the mindset of the investor you know their challenges Mm. which I really never thought they they had many challenges but they actually (laughs) do and essentially even the founders that I meet here there's more open conversations Mm. where it's not like a competition to go to one investor but it's like it's even more so collaborations Mm. where I'm speaking to a founder we can collaborate on a certain project on but it's it's good to see early stage investors you know when you go to some other investor forums you're speaking to dfis who are offering you know high hundreds of millions of dollars they don't understand the early stage space you have to really like go through a background check if they understand early stage investment but here you kind of think everybody knows that but really what's interesting is listening to an investor pitch you know, I've never heard that mm. and really say what their challenges are. And, you know, we can definitely reflect back from that as well.
0: From a founder's perspective, what are some of those challenges from an investor's point of view that are actually relevant to you as a founder? And, and I imagine many of your peers in the continent, I know you're from Kenya, you're based in Nairobi, but even in Lagos, Cairo, Jobig, the four points, the big four. What's most relevant that you've heard that really surprised you that you didn't know before?
2: Yeah, how they don't understand how blended financing works, mm. like they... They speak about blended financing and speak about it almost being a competition. So a donor investor will look at a commercial investor as you know diluting the market or yes. something like that. So it's interesting to see the competitiveness between one investor to another, and they don't realize that actually they need to be working together mm. so that they can achieve this early stage investment rather than looking at each other as this person is diluting the market or this person the donors are but so that's interesting the the topic of agnostic Mm. is also really interesting i didn't understand investors thought if you were only in climate tech Mm -hmm. if you're not too agnostic then that's an issue i really didn't understand that they're talking about you know broadening up their spectrums which is something interesting that i I would think that niche investors would have more from a market, but they're talking about being agnostic, and I really didn't really understand why they did that. So first, it's the competition between the investors, mm-hmm. the donuts investors, the commercial investor, there's an interesting competition that's going on there, and they should actually collaborate with each other. And then the fact that they're talking about specified markets versus agnostic markets and sectors, so that's one thing that I really captured and that was interesting to hear.
0: And you pitched... Yes. Really, uh How did it go? How did you find that experience?
2: Pitching was, as usual, anxiety-driven, but it was good. A lot of startups pitched, so I've pitched them a, a couple of times. After a pitch, we go into almost this phase where we're chasing investors, but mm. this time I pitched and investors kind of came to me. So that was really interesting where when you find an environment where the investors out number the the founder yes. they kind of come and start approaching you so this was a, a better pitch in the fact that i was able to kind of uh, attract investors to me mm. both commercial and donor
0: when you are making a pitch mm-hmm. what are the critical skills you think about i know you generally have a time limit but how do you prioritize what information you share yeah. with the investors because it's oh, yeah it, you have one pitch you're looking for that home run, and it's like it, this sort of environment where mm-hmm. it's an investor focused thing is great yeah but what do you do in your end to ensure that you provide enough information to get investors? To come yeah,
2: to right now, Baridi has received pre-orders from certain mm. companies and one of the, Mindset was: Should we mention the fact that one of our biggest clients, or uh,
0: you don't, you don't have to mention their name. We, yeah, we're yeah, just speaking yeah. high level terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: right. Yeah, exactly what we're t- how we're saying. Do I mention the names of this, you know, this deals that are almost closing but are not yet right. closed? So those are the certain informations mm. that, as companies, we're really scared of sharing information with. Mm. So, but for a pitch, it's pretty basic. Problem solution impact and then really that one deck that you need is the pre-orders but you can't mention Mm. again because of the fear that the what is it is it called jinxing you don't (laughs) want to jinx the pre-order so you're really reluctant to actually mention names of of things that are coming up so i think the deck in itself is pretty basic but what we struggled in sharing is our our pre-order clientele mm. and just that's just a, a jinxing i don't know it's a mythological
0: well i guess it's about being conservative versus aggressive and mm-hmm. how much information you share you only want to share something that's signed on the dotted yeah line exactly and then done on ink there's been a lot of talk about size tech only then versus startups that have infrastructure mm-hmm. and assets and, yeah you work with assets now yeah. so what's the difference i mean you you are a tech solution a mm-hmm. tech oriented solution mm-hmm. and it's naturally vital to your business. But what experience that having to manage assets and, yeah. and work with providers and partners provides you that maybe a pure SaaS player as an example, maybe that yeah. won't, won't have to do just because of the nature of your business? Yeah,
2: I mean, fintech definitely takes the lead. I'm coming here, you know, pitching an asset mm. that's like thirty to $50,000. There's not that many asset-based investors. Investors shy away from that. Yes. But, you know, ironically, I think that's one of the things that have made us stand out you know, the fact that everybody's pitching fintech, everybody's pitching software, and then this hardware company kind of comes in and like takes the stage and everybody's like, oh, this is a physical, it's not like a an app. So I, I do find it as a negative in terms of there are yes. not that many investors that come in as asset financiers, but in a pitch perspective, it's different, right? Somebody's saying, oh, now this is a, an actual tangible, it's not just a software. Mm-hmm. But of course, fintech is financed way more than renewable energy, agri-tech, but it's really just about knowing the the investors that want to finance asset and those that don't want. Of course, there's more in fintech than in asset. Yes. But really, I think it's uh, whenever I pitch after, you know, 10 software founders and then I come in with an asset, I usually feel like there's a little bit of an advantage that comes with that.
0: With differentiation. Yeah, with right.
2: differentiation. Yeah.
0: Yeah. My final two questions. It's been a hard year. I know people are speaking from a fundraising perspective. <laughs> How do you keep perspective as a founder? Because Mm -hmm. naturally you're watching your bank balance, there's cash burning. Yes. How do you maintain perspective to know, well, to have work-life balance if I can call it that. I I feel like to a founder, it's a harsh question to answer, but uh, how do you keep your mental well-being in a place which allows you to execute and manage your business well? How how do you do that?
2: I wish I had the answer. I think I just had (laughs) an anxiety attack (laughs)
0: before
2: coming. It's hard. It's hard when you're growing, you need to burn more. You know, we just had a conversation with my team about compensation and about how we need to add assets and about how are we going to finance this large project. And like, so it's like, it's, I don't have the answer to that. There's a lot of founders who face anxiety problems, which again, like I, I faced, and I think the the thing that has helped me was meditation, meditation Mm -hmm. and prayer. Mm But really I can never, you you have to kind of face it. There's a lot of mental health, especially issues and burnout that you take, especially if a company is growing, you know? You face anxiety when the company is failing, face even more anxiety when the company is growing, Mm. and there's no way to deal with that. Again, like I said, I just came from from having like a very minor anxiety attack, but I'm learning how to do that. Having systems in place in the company, you know, Mm where it's like it's okay if this problem comes in there's systems for a solution that's that's one of the thing but really um mental health problems within a founder is always going to be there whether the company is growing or the company is failing and now company is growing and i still have consistent problems with with having a work-life balance and having even more importantly like a really balanced mental state to actually do this
0: yeah people talk about grit but Mm -hmm. one day at a time
2: one day at a time
0: would that apply in, in this instance, yeah. and th- thank you for being so candid about that. It's always a question I ask because yeah. it happens a lot, but I feel it still needs to be spoken about a lot mm-hmm. more because then it might refer to failure or yeah. weakness or something of that nature which isn't reflected upon well in the yeah. ecosystem. So, mm-hmm. just thank you for raising that for sharing no. that. And my final question on a slightly more broader note, if I want to put it that way yeah. the theme for ACES this year was 10 years in the ecosystem. I know someone who I spoke to down now mm-hmm. said it's gone 120x from Mm -hmm. his base and 10 years Mm -hmm. ago so we must have perspective Mm -hmm. what excites you the most about the next 10 years in the ecosystem from Mm a founder's perspective Mm -hmm. where do you think it may divide it but i guess even from your perspective operating in kenya and, and i'll say east africa more broadly
2: yeah so what's exciting about the last 10 years of the startup is first of all local founders are kind of coming up which is beautiful i'm seeing a lot of women founders also coming mm. in which was exciting i think most of the pitches that kind of came in were from women i know if we would have gone back to 10 years it really wouldn't have been that yes. youth are also coming out into the ecosystem funding kind of is seasonal sometimes yes. it's there sometimes it's not so that one there's really no way to control that but I'm, i of course the Startup ecosystem in Africa is growing. Like yes. whether we're gonna do statistics or not, like the population is growing, the creativity is growing, the awareness of of investment is growing. Where you know, usually ten years back. I started this journey five years ago and I started knowing the only way I can get money is through a bank, Mm. but the awareness is really, really growing. So there's nothing but, you know, we're we're growing, we're going, we're going up. Sometimes the investment is low. Sometimes the investment is high. I think 2021, 2022, there was massive amount of investment in the African ecosystem. And the problem is people are seeing uh, founders fail and then st- stopping investments, which is weird because the 2022-2023 period there was almost no investment coming yes. in, but this, the ecosystem is growing. It's not growing rapidly, but it, it is growing, and you're seeing more local founders, more women founders, more youth founders. So I think it's it's taking place, and mm. it, you know, Nairobi is definitely the savanna. What is it called? The, the Silicon Savanna?
0: Silicon Savanna. Yeah. It's an arising tide of startups, even if the the impression I get is the tide is a bit stepped mm-hmm. in certain places. It it's, not, it's not one flat piece of water. I'm it using that metaphor since we care about the sea. Next, Maxime Bayen, an ecosystem veteran who wants to fund and build startups focused on building a climate resilient future for Africa. So my name is
4: Maxime Bayen. I'm an operating partner in the fund Catalyst Fund, where we do climate tech investments in Africa. I also run this platform called Africa The Big Deal, where we track fundraising startups deals in um in Africa since 2019 or so so yeah
0: when speaking to maybe appears at this edition of asus what themes and those conversations have emerged most for you what's most top of mind i think for investors given the current state of the ecosystem and we're at the back end of 2023
4: You know, typically this time of the year in these events mm. or other even this week's is the time to reflect on the year and celebrate the big numbers, and it's been actually record year after year record year the past couple of years. So usually that's you know that's the, the, the that's what people talk about. This year it's a little bit different because the the numbers are a bit lower, and um, I think what I've been hearing is a little bit more like, okay, yes, things have slowed down a little bit this year compared to last year but maybe it's for the better maybe you know it's the beginning of a new phase for the ecosystem where maybe you know maybe valuations are a bit lower maybe runs are a little bit more reasonable you know maybe governance is better and overall you know everybody wins from that so you know i've heard people talking about you know startup failure and what we should learn from it and the fact that it's okay for startups to fail and it's part of the ecosystem and we should also embrace this and encourage startups to fail and and founders to share about their failures a safe place to do that i've heard uh, also discussions on you know how we should take a step back on the ecosystem the fact that it's been you know 10 years journey more than that and that you know the ecosystem has grown so much in the past 10 years i mean i looked at numbers just 10 years ago 2014 we were celebrating the fact that the Total amount of funding going to startups in Africa doubled versus last year, and that was actually getting to $27 million only. And now we are at 3.2 billion this Mm -hmm. year, so you know, 120 times more. So, you know, we need to put back things in perspective. So it's not, it's not just a one-year journey, it's a you know 10, 15, 20 years' journey. So I think that's also was an interesting topic discussed. And then, you know, because this is very investor-centric conference i think i heard a lot of very optimistic investors in the past couple of days it's actually a good time to be investing in africa Uh, you know you have less competition a lot of opportunities you get access to great deal flow yeah so you know overall that's what i would that's what i would share the the last point is Mm. which is also very close to what we do at catalyst fund is the emergence of you know a bit of a new sector which is the the climate tech sector Mm. Which now is roughly, you know, one in three dollars going to to startups in Africa goes to this sector, and that's something that you know uh, really gets us at Catalyst Fund, and and I feel across the industry quite excited. So um, that's also, yeah, I would say it's a bit of a, a turning point in the in the ecosystem. Maybe we're gonna get a little bit less of you know neo banks deals in, in Nigeria, and maybe more. I don't know. Water desalination innovation in, in Egypt, and maybe it's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm. So, yeah, that's what I would share on the, what I've heard.
0: There was a lot of talk about due diligence as well. Just what's your perspective on due diligence and generally taking from the founder's perspective, what are the biggest green and red flags in talking to a founder about due diligence, especially in climate, where there's a yeah. lot of greenwashing is uh, endemic? Yeah. And, and I think. You know, I mean, at least for us at Catalyst Fund, due diligence Mm.
4: has always been something quite, quite critical. I would say our due diligence are fairly thorough compared to what I see across the market. It's also due to the fact that we invest in early stage, that we invest in climate. And so we need to to go a little bit deep, you know, to your point on, you know, red flag, green flags, you know, for us, again, because we invest at very early stage, Mm -hmm. I would say the big red flags is when we we come across founders that basically share incorrect information. You mm-hmm. know, um, if they tell us, you know, our sales is i don't know, $10,000 monthly recurring revenue and we realize it's actually a tenth of that. Yes. That's not great. We really want to cross check, you know, at, at the end of the day we're really backing teams, mm-hmm. so we want to make sure that, you know, we can build a lot of trust with these teams. So, any information that uh, you know that we have doubts on, or you know things like, oh yeah, we are in an advanced discussion with this investor, and then you know we are going to call this investor, yes. and if they tell us no, we actually had just one call and we decided to pass. You know, like that's not great. So don't lie, really. So that's that. I think is a big red flag. Mm-hmm. Then I would say is the usual, the usual thing. So yeah, team is really what we check. Yes. We spend a lot of time on that. We we actually have calls during which we try to. To understand the you know psychology of the founders, the the founder market fit, you know it's like basically an hour call during which we talk mainly about the founder mm. and the CEO, and maybe a bit less about the startup and the model, but more about who they are, you know, what will happen if challenges occur, what will happen if something happens to them and they cannot kind of work for one month, who will run the company, what are they ready to sacrifice for this venture. What would they do if they wouldn't be running this company and so on? really to assess you know if they're in for the long run? Yes. and we, we know how hard it is, and we want to back funders that you know no matter hard it's going to be, they're gonna to stick to the solving the problem that they' are after. So that's something that you know for us that where where we identify some red and green flags. Mm. then of course, you know, product, market size, exit opportunities. And then there's the the climate narrative that is extremely important for us. So we invest only in startups that are in the climate adaptation and resilience space, which, you know, is quite a specific area, but also fairly broad to some extent. But yeah, we need to make sure that whatever they're building is helping people to adapt to the negative effect of climate change. And we're also paying a lot of, we're putting a lot of scrutiny on making sure that there is not unwanted Negative effects. You know, sometimes it could be a company coming up with an innovation that looks great on paper. Yes. But maybe in the long run, the effects are negative, and so we we, we cross check that with you know different experts, different verticals as well, to make sure that you know there is not such a thing. So, yeah, we spend a lot of time on assessing the um, the climate impact as well. Yeah, that's that's really what I what I would share. We. One thing that, you know, it's not a red flag, mm. but there are a couple of things that, you know, we're increasingly paying attention to uh, because we also have mandate on that. One is uh, backing local funders. Mm. So we have a mandate to back 80% local funders in our portfolio. Same on female funders. Mm. So we actually have a target of 40%. And right now we are, I think, at 35% across the portfolio. Startups that have either, you know, female founder or co-founder. So you know again not, not a red flag, but you know we 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 have we have set some some milestones there that are quite important. And then you know again not necessarily a direct red flag, but we we are increasingly careful to ideally back not solo founders. So basically, hmm. funding teams unless you know it's not a, there are many exceptions. You know we have backed and we will continue to back hmm. some solo founders, but but it's something that you know it needs to be exceptional individuals with ideally you know great management team if they're not if they don't have a co-founder so yeah that's a little bit what we what we pay attention to of course unit economics are important more than ever mm-hmm. you know road to profitability something that we, we also have under scrutiny
0: but those are fairly yeah fairly common i'd say yeah mm-hmm. well, you do what's unique to yourselves but also the fundamentals the word that we've heard a lot mm-hmm. you mentioned tech, and i hear asset heavy mm-hmm. There seems to be a bit of a mind shift going on within the investor class if i can term it that way of not moving away from asset lights, startups, but reconsidering startups that look at assets or own assets. What's your personal view on that? Do you think it's healthy? Maybe ties into the positive conversations that you've had.
4: I don't necessarily see it as something new in the ecosystem. Mm. You know, the the first company I had the opportunity to give funding to back then, it was through grants. Mm. And when I was here with GSMA, the first company I gave a grant to is a company called Twiga Foods. That was back in 2016. And Trigger Foods, back then, they were raising money also to buy trucks and tuk-tuks yeah. and warehouses. And and it was assets-heavy, and that was, you know, eight years ago. And, you know, they've raised a lot of funding since. I don't necessarily think that capex-intensive business is new for Africa. I think, you know, we had had in the past couple of, you know, year, two years, Maybe more startups that were a little bit more, you know, software centric and and a bit purely digital. But in my opinion, and it's you know, Catalyst Fund has always been positioned around that. Uh, you know, we believe in tech and touch. You yes. know, so a mix of online and offline. Most of the companies that have really been successful across the continent have have had this this tech and touch approach across the different verticals. Think healthcare, things, logistics, mm-hmm. think um, even e-commerce. So. I don't see many businesses that have worked that have been successful with just an app. You know, you're, we're in South Africa, take a company like Yoko, that mm. is, meant like almost ubiquitous here across Africa, every shop you go to, every taxi driver as a, a Yoko, but it comes with a device, you know, yes. initially what they were great at is manufacturing, designing this great device, mm. this card reader, that they didn't build a platform on top of, but again, it's a mix, you know, it's a mix of an app, some tech, but also some device and some, you know, they had to raise some depth for to produce those devices and so on. You know, that's the that's the reality. So I think, you know, climate tech, of course, some of the climate tech models are a little bit more capex intensive. Yes. I don't see that as something dramatically new in the ecosystem. Mm. I think it's again, you know, building on the idea that, you know, this is not Silicon Valley this is not an ecosystem where you can scale a company with just an app and you know online credit card payments that's never worked and it probably will never it's a mix of both and i think that's that's the way it's going to be as well for climate tech so i i don't necessarily see this as a problem you know if it's purely capex and if it's just purely you know building stuff and there's Mm. no tech at all you know, maybe it's not VC-backable. I'm not saying every climate tech business, or every climate adaptation solution is VC-backable. In our view, it's, it's a mix and the mix is what makes it scalable. But, you know, in most cases, investors, VCs are actually open to that in, across the continent. So I don't see any VC that is, you know, saying just we just do purely software. In Africa, that that's not what I'm what I'm hearing. So I'm not too worried on the fact that you know climate tech startups, the good ones, will be able to raise even if they're a bit capex intensive. The other the other thing is that there is more and more venture debt available. Mm. I think this year we are at over a billion dollar already of debt provided to startups. It might be a record year for debt actually, and maybe we don't talk enough about it, but. This is a vehicle that's increasingly available mm. for startups and that, you know, comes as a great complement to equity. You know, you shouldn't raise equity to build machines, you know, you yes. So I think this was said yesterday by, by Ido from TL.com, you know, mm. like the, the, the need for blended capital is really important, especially in climate
0: tech. My last question, the theme here is 10X. As you said we, we've we grown a lot and we maybe, so perspective is needed, especially from a climate tech perspective, what excites you the most? over the next, I was going to say 10 years, but it feels like an age, so maybe three to five years within the climate tech space on the African continent. Which maybe niches of that vertical yeah. are the most exciting and, and also where you think they can make the most impact, especially in the markets that you're seeing innovation yeah. in Germany?
4: Well, that's, a, that's a, broad, it's a broad question. It's what we do, <laughs> it's like bread and butter. But um, no, I mean, there are a couple of areas that I'm really excited about. Uh, agriculture is definitely one of okay. them you know, we have been backing companies doing amazing things around the lines of agroforestry, for instance, Mm -hmm. and bringing regenerative agriculture to scale. I think for too many years, we have been opposing conventional monoculture type of agriculture with, you know, uh, sort of like bio agriculture that was more premium and that was more, you know, like for upmarket and so on and small scale, you know, we fundamentally believe that you can Scale regenerative agriculture. You can bring regenerative agriculture at scale through agroforestry model. Mm. We're backing a startup in, in, in Morocco doing exactly that. They call Santu Green. They do land restoration, and their plan is not to, you know, to produce some small quantity of bio produce that will be targeted export markets or, or, or uh, you know higher income population. Their goal is to produce for populations locally at market price but by doing regenerative agriculture by leveraging you know solar powered desalination solution agroforestry models biochar as well and and so bring that to scale so i think that's really exciting so that's one area and this i also also mentioned biochar for instance another you know technology that i think i call it technology also it's very ancient but i think bringing it back to the front scene is quite interesting and using biochar as fertilizer can also be interesting so we're looking at a couple of models in that space another vertical that i'm really excited about is healthcare mm. which you know people don't necessarily think as a it doesn't come as top of mind when it comes to climate tech but if you think about it right now in africa one in two else event even is directly linked or accentuated by climate change mm. think you know vector-borne disease yes. uh, malaria dengue fever yellow fever think waterborne disease dysentery and so there's so many health issues that are really significantly impacted by climate change. And so solutions allowing people to access primary health care in the continent is actually making them a lot more climate resilient. So you know I believe there's a lot to be done in that space, not an easy nut to crack. And again, you know we believe that it's not going to be just purely telemedicine online solution. It's going to be a mix. Yeah. You know, we we just invested in a company. In Tanzania, doing that, you know, mix of you know offline clinics and online telemedicine, applying tech to to brick and mortar as well. So that's another area I'm, I'm really exciting uh, excited about. Um, the third one I would mention is maybe climate data. Mm. whether is to use you know satellite data to do precision agriculture, for instance, or you know gathering weather data. I don't know deploying uh, weather stations across mm. the continent. There's a lot to be done in that space. You know, I, you know, we at Catalyst Fund believe that you know data is really the sort of like the primary foundation layer that you need to do to to build anything really. And so right now, the fact that we're lacking so much climate data in the continent is, you know, jeopardizing the capacity to to better adapt to climate change. If you think, you know, just very practically weather forecasts, Mm. you take in an event like what happened in Mozambique couple of a uh, couple of months ago you know not being able to properly predict a hurricane where it's going to hit which part of the coast which city how many people will be affected who should we displace to you know save lives and so on as this has a massive impact and yes. right now this is you know this is the reality we there should be eight times more weather stations across the continent to have proper weather forecasting data so you know, this is really extremely important and we believe there's a lot more that can be done in that space. So yeah, those are the three, three sectors I would mention. I could go on more and yes. more, but
0: I think- uh, I, delved into, <laughs> I delved into, I think you can see the, the, the interest box popping up.
4: Yes, no, it's definitely, you know, it's what we look at on a daily basis. So it is exciting. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Lastly, we hear from Ben White, who founded VC4A back in 2007. Ben also partakes in several programs that focus on policy formation within the ecosystem.
5: My name is Ben White. I'm a founder of VC4A, a co founder of Afrolabs and ABAN. vc 4 is a network-based organization for entrepreneurs building high-growth, high-impact startups. Uh, Afrolabs is a Pan-African Association of Innovation Hubs. and ABAN is uh, basically a, a network of angel investing networks, high-net-worth individuals that are investing in, in early-stage companies. Hmm. And VC4A and A Ban through a joint collaboration are the organizers of Aces, the African Early Stage Investor Summit. You know, VC4A was doing it in 2013, and at some point we said we need to give much more emphasis to an angel investing movement across the continent. Mm -hmm. Which is in 2015 when we started A Ban, really as a dedicated association. Uh, and the two organizations have been working together ever since to grow the community of early-stage Africa-focused investors, which come together as part of ASIS, and this is the 10th edition. Mm. So uh, we've been doing it for a decade, and yeah, it's uh, keeping us busy, that's for sure. I was gonna ask, how's it going? Is your track record even in the ecosystem
0: even precedes ASIS? It's been 10 years. Someone noted to me that the ecosystem has grown by almost 120X since those beginnings. As someone has been in the center of that growth, Many people helping to drive it forward. I know you've done a lot of work on the policy side as well, you're highly experienced with the European Union. How's the ecosystem changed in the last ten years? And maybe then to put it in context, how that change has been affected by the last tough year that they've had from a fundraising point of view?
5: Yeah, you know, so literally November fifth, twenty thirteen, mm. so almost exactly ten years ago. I actually published an article on VC a that was celebrating the fact that African ventures received 12 million in venture finance. And if you compare that, which of course was super exciting at that time <laughs> because it? it was finally, you know, some proof that there was something happening, you know, 10 years later in the last 3 years, so between 2019 and 2023, it's 11.5 billion. Equity only that has been invested into African ventures. So we've literally gone from twelve million dollars to eleven point five billion dollars, which, you know, granted, is still kind of just scratching Mm -hmm. the surface. It's still just a drop in the ocean, but it's it's definitely better than twelve million dollars. Like it's a huge forward momentum. And then the question is, you know, how long does it now take us to get to the hundred billion mark? Mm is that something that we'll be able to reach by 2030 could we do it by 2028 that it will happen is is for certain mm. it's just really a question of of when and i think that's also kind of how i personally look at you know markets being up or markets being down you know if you're if your time horizon is 6 months or 12 months then obviously you know these changes in the market have huge implications mm. But if your horizon and, you know, sort of in building industries or or in in building ecosystems, which is really my focus, where your horizon is, you know, measured in 10 years Mm -hmm. or in 20 years, essentially everything is kind of up and to the right you know, it's not gonna be a perfect, you know, line. It'll have, you know, some deviations along the way, but that's part of, you know, that's just the reality, that's okay.
0: You're just giving me a good segue. One of the themes I heard mentioned on the panels and the discussions have been really enlightening is that long-term view, sometimes the ecosystem can be broken down into a quarterly view and even a yearly view, but you're thinking about 10, 15 years from now. Do you think that the fact that ecosystems mature turn into a teenager, if you wanna talk about it in terms of age, do you think there's a view amongst the investor class, to use that word, that we should be thinking more long-term? And maybe is that the appropriate approach in your
5: point of view of how we should be thinking about the ecosystem at large? I think, so that's always been my my view. Mm. I don't think we're necessarily a teenager Maybe we were an infant right. and now we're a toddler. Okay. In terms um, of the, the continuum. Yeah, in terms of okay. where we are, right. but also to frame how much work is still to be done Yes, and what is left for us to do. Mm. So this is still very much the beginning, mm. that there's incredible potential, that there are absolutely outstanding, inspiring mm. entrepreneurs across the continent. That is absolutely for certain. But before we have the infrastructure built around that innovation, you know, that's what needs to happen before we actually unlock the full potential of that innovation. And that's something that will, you know, beyond me, right? Yes. Even the next generation and the generation thereafter will be, will be carrying that work forward. And I think that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to build institutions that we can hand off to the next generation. And I think you're seeing that, like this is one of the most exciting parts of the work that we do is, you know, where we ourselves maybe started almost as, well, very young adults, right? Probably in our late 20s. Now people are walking around in their 40s and their 50s. You're seeing a new generation come into the picture and they're starting to assume new roles and responsibilities. And so you know, what's most inspiring is Mm. to see that there's actually, you know, there's a response to the call for leadership Mm. and you're seeing people basically across, you know, sort of the ecosystem step into really exciting new positions and are doing it, you know, better than maybe we did it ourselves, right? They're bringing new energy, fresh perspectives, new tactics the markets have changed, the circumstances have evolved. And so they're also bringing new experiments to the table that we wouldn't have dared to have mm. you know, tried to implement five years ago. So yeah, I think that's really exciting. Mm. And drawing it back quickly to the
0: present day Asus, if you can put maybe the top two or three themes that you found when speaking to investors here, what's top of mind for them? What What have probably been the most emergent or priority themes that they've been discussing? What's top of their minds based on the conversations you've had here at the summit?
5: Well, you know, it's top of their minds. It's what's also top of our minds. They might not always be the same thing. Yeah. I think what we've always tried to instill as VC4A, mm. uh, also through ABAN and and most certainly through the community that we're building as ACES is really this, this idea of mentor-driven capital mm. that Money is not necessarily the solution. It's one input. It is an ingredient that only works in combination when we roll up our sleeves and actually work with the founders to build these companies. Mm -hmm. There's a ton of mentorship that needs to happen, especially when you're working with first-generation founders who don't have two or three successes or failures already under their belt. So you know when it comes to things like understanding what is good governance it's more than just reading you know a pamphlet or following an online you know module it's actually really you know working with entrepreneurs to instill those best practices which is fundamental for being able to run a business professionally, but also if those entrepreneurs and us as investors who put money into those businesses, expect other investors to come to the table. Mm. The more money that goes into the business, the greater the expectations are in terms of the systems, the processes, the governance structures that, that need to be in place in order to be able to manage that effectively. And so, yeah, I think this is, you know, where it's really about getting, you know, hands on with joining these founders and in, in helping to build great businesses. And that has been one of the challenges in, in maybe the last, you know, sort of 24 months when capital was in such great supply, that there wasn't so much pressure on some of these more fundamental things mm. because, you know, it was too easy to get money, so to speak. And now we kind of come back to some of these core principles, and and that's I, I think in the long term very very healthy, yes. because it's about building strong businesses with good fundamentals that, regardless of where the markets are, you know they're going to to find their success and and make their progress. Yeah. But you know always at ASUS, it's a conversation around where is the money being deployed, what are the gaps, are they being addressed. You know, do people see the issues and, and is there gonna be a response? Mm-hmm. And of course, exits. You know, we have a number of funds that are now probably, you know, in, in deployment of year seven, year eight. So, you know, it's in in the coming two, three years, we really wanna start seeing more successful exits because the whole industry depends on this. Mm-hmm. There is capital absolutely for the african venture space but you know any limited partner wants to know that there's a a viable chance of getting a good return and so until we have those case studies and until we start really showing what that path to exit looks like you know, then then it's just the key to unlocking a, a whole lot more capital and a whole lot more activity. Mm. So we're getting there. I think it's something like seventeen exits that we you know that have been materialized really significant. It's probably much more in the trade sale space. Mm. Mm. But so you know, as that track record develops, it, it's gonna do a lot for, for our efforts. We want to see more exits as part of a future
0: state. The theme of this year was 10X in the ecosystem. What makes you positive as my final question for the next ten years in the ecosystem, and we'll put an to your early-stage investment view, what excites you the most about the early-stage sector for the next coming 10 years in the
5: ecosystem? At the core of, of our beliefs at, at vc forays is that it's always about the entrepreneurs. Mm. You have incredible talent across the continent, and where... Many people would say, you know, oh, I see problems, I see challenges, I say reasons why, you know, something's not possible, or it can't happen. You have a generation of Africans who simply see the glasses being half full, and every problem can be turned into an opportunity if you have the right lens and the the motivation mm-hmm. and the creativity. So there is no lack or shortage of this positive energy and you know, simply connecting entrepreneurs as part of a single network. You know, now we have more than 250,000 members in 179 countries. There's 27,000 startups, uh, high growth, high impact companies that are moving across the continent. You know, basically as this community grows, it becomes more visible and it increasingly becomes more accessible. Entrepreneurs, when they come together as a group, their voice grows, right? Their strength at the table Improves. So, you know, 10 years ago, it was impossible to get government to show up at a startup event and to have a real serious conversation Mm. about what needs to happen. That starts to change when you have 250,000 entrepreneurs. And you've seen this across the continent where startup community organizes around, like, for example, these startup manifestos. And they're taking their ideas, their requests, their needs to government. But it's not simply, you know, disappearing into some kind of file cabinet. It's actually being translated into legislature, uh, legislative action. And it's changing how governments are working, partnering with the startup community. So, you know, as these these countries that have, have been more proactively working with the entrepreneurs and accepting their ideas, they're going to be rewarded. Mm-hmm. They're going to be rewarded with economic growth, with innovation, with foreign direct investment. And, and that's going to then encourage the other countries that maybe were still waiting on the sidelines or hadn't caught on to, you know, the startup movement. And so you're really going to see this spread deeper and deeper and further and further across the continent and it's all driven by the entrepreneurs so I think you know as sort of stakeholders or ecosystem builders it's really just about creating the platforms that allow the entrepreneurs to lead the way and everything should be around improving their access to support improving their access to resources and trying to make the path to entrepreneurship and successful growth in entrepreneurship as easy as possible because it's You know, obviously, challenging markets. Infrastructure is not always perfect. There's all kinds of you know challenges that entrepreneurs have to face along the way, and and so we just need to we we just need to be improving their chances of of success. And and the success that they realize is is what will drive the rest of the ecosystem. Success begets success.
0: That is a wrap for this episode of the African Prezi Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you're an Africa-focused founder or investor looking to learn more about Africa's tech ecosystem, check out AfricanPreseed.com for more great content like this. That's all for now. Take care.